Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Scott Branson. Scott Branson is a queer and trans writer, teacher, artist, and an anarchist. And he has written this wonderful book called uh, Anarchism, A Guide for Daily Life, Practical Anarchism, A Guide for Daily Life, which is published by Pluto Press. And he's here to, today to talk uh, with us about the book. Scott, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, <laughs> all the way on the other side of the, the globe. <laughs> yeah, with it's it's kind of early in the morning here and late in the evening there, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, Scott, can you first uh, introduce yourself, tell us a little about yourself and your works? Yeah, uh, I, well, I mean, I don't want to identify myself through my, my uh, you know, job work, but uh, I, like, I do tend to take some of my income from teaching for universities or sometimes a good chunk of it if I can get the job, but it's an inconsistent thing. Um, and usually I, I use that as a way to create other kinds of work that engage more broadly with the public. Um, even when I'm at, you know, you know, colleges and universities, I put on events. So I'm an organizer. Um, I collaborate with lots of different people. I'm always trying to put everything I have towards a collective sense of liberation. Um, I wrote this book on practical anarchism. I'm currently working on something about um, trans liberation, looking at the the way that gay liberation and women's movement kind of created the current um, the current situation of anti-trans panic and what a vision of like a kind of my version of an anarchist trans feminist uh, view would be. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do a lot of things. I give talks. I, I love connecting with people. Like writing a book is is really for me a way to. To, to say, hey, I'm here and I want to talk. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of events around this lately, which has been really wonderful. Oh, fascinating. Uh, let's talk about this book, Practical Anarchism, A Guide for Daily Life. Well, how did the book come about? Why did you decide to write a book on anarchism? I mean, it's called Practical Anarchism, A Guide for Daily Life. Yeah. Um, so I never sat down, you know, originally thinking I'm going to write a book about practice, uh, about anarchism. Like the, it seems almost paradoxical to me to be like, uh, I'm an authority on anti-authoritarian, um, thinking, but, um, I'm on this network, the North American anarchist studies network and an editor from Pluto was looking for someone to write a book on anarchism that wasn't centered on, you know, specifically street confrontation, like what we always get in the news about like the black block or, um, you know, like property destruction, a kind of like lineage that goes back to the Red Scare, like the, you know, propaganda by the deed and bombings and stuff like that. And I, I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is a way to crystallize a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last number of years, both in organizing and in thinking. Um, and I wrote a proposal to Pluto pressing, I could write this book about anarchism as something that we do every day um, and, and think about that, make a case for why that's really important, you know, because a lot of the times the um, work that we do that isn't like, you know, so visibly resistant or even like taking on the more confrontational tactics gets erased. But all of that kind of 
confrontation is made possible by like the, the work we do to make living possible. Um, so it's like specifically the kind of like queer feminist look at, um, at anarchism as something that we enact within our relationships, like a kind of ethical investigation of like how we can prioritize um, mutual responsibility and accountability and, and freedom um, in, in all the kind of little spaces of our life. And, you know, I also think about, you know, rather than, uh, I, I take a specific kind of stance around what revolution might mean. And rather than waiting for like a punctual revolution for the world to get started, anarchism uh, imagines like starting that world right now, like prefiguration. We want to live in the world we, that we want to create. And so rather than like try to, um, you know, imagine the perfect conditions in which to enact anarchism. I try to look at like the ways that we're forced to live under capitalism and the state right now and and think like, how can we like be in that situation and still try to maximize mm-hmm. our connections with people and, and our access, like spreading out resources and, and carving out spaces of freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's uh, start with some definitions. How do you define, because you just... Uh, kind of touched upon that. So anarchism, unfortunately, has a very bad rep. It's mainly because of misunderstanding. People simply think it means disorder. But right. how, how do you, what, what is a generally accepted definition of anarchism? Maybe a philosophical definition of that that comes from, uh, I don't know, Peter uh, Kropotkin or, you know, the ones that were established by both those theories. And then how do you define it? What is anarchism to you? Yeah. I mean, I think like the a, a good way to kind of define classical anarchism is to um, like uh, think about organizing the world outside of ingrained hierarchies, right? So like a horizontal relationship among people and communities, and and like maybe even federated different kind of communities rather than centralized authority. Um, so overturning all the hierarchies that uh, that that organize our life. Um, and through that, there's an idea, like, basically, it comes down to how, like, balancing individual autonomy and, um, and like, mutual relationships or, like, you know, mutual aid, right? How do you have a, a, a kind of freedom that enables the individual to be free and the community at large to be free and all the individuals to be free? So often I think about anarchism, why anarchism is really important is because it, it attends to this question that, like, you know, Marxism, communism doesn't always attend to because it, it thinks on like in the mass scale and like co- big collectives um, that like, you know, June Jordan says when we get rid of all the monsters, everyone might want to run in different directions. And we have to think about that, that like not everyone wants the same thing. Um, so, yeah. So, sorry, I kind of went out there, but like, you know, no centralized authority, no ingrained hierarchies, anti-capitalist because capitalism is a way of in, in, enshrining hierarchy right through the class system. Um, it has to be feminist, too, because I think of feminism as something that is undoing naturalized hierarchies of race and gender. Um, and uh, in the positive sense, it's thinking like that we have to um that the way that we act now is creating the world that we want to create. So the means and the ends have to be in line with each other, right? That we don't just like do like against the kind of Marxist idea that you could seize the state and you, and then, and use the state to get freedom. The idea is that like, if you seize the state power, you're going to get caught up in state power and not, and not create um, a liberated world. Um, and this also is a kind of a sense of what's called prefiguration that I mentioned before that like that, like we, have the tools right now to enact that world. And actually, you know, like Kropotkin thinking about mutual aid, that, that, that we, 
we tend to act in anar along, along anarchist principles when we are left to our own devices by the state. Um, and that in um, a bunch of different settings, we, we just do quite well, right? So I'm pulling on a lot of these ideas in myself, but I, in my work, but I'm trying to think about anarchism slightly differently. Um, I kind of mentioned it in the book as a kaleidoscope shift. So what uh, I'm interested in thinking about how we are trained to to think that the world that we are living in right now has existed forever and will exist forever. And it is like sort of like the best and only way, right? This is the kind of like end of history um, idea. Um, but like, you know, that's that's not true, first of all, because there's been other ways of existing um, that, that were great. Um, they just were, a lot of them conquered or colonized um, and, and genocided out of uh, existence. And some of them still exist right now. Um, and so thinking like of the sort of imposition of the state and capital as this long process of forcing people to rely on these power structures to exist means that we've been like divorced from the um, understanding of how we actually like live our lives and create our lives. And so in the book, I'm trying to look at the ways that we reproduce our lives outside of the state and capital and like don't need those things. So the kaleidoscope shift is like, like if you look, you can like, look at the world slightly differently and see like, oh, here's all these opportunities to kind of widen that crack and like disinvest from the state, disinvest from the market. Um, and, and we have that power in our hands right now in our daily lives. So like, you know, from that feminist perspective that the Marxist feminist idea of like social reproduction that like that women are um, sort of created and forced into this situation of like the labor of reproducing the capitalist relations that allow for production of of you know commodities um um that like we do this work of reproducing the world and we could do the work of reproducing a different world rather than the world that we live in right and if we bring our attention there um then we can start doing it even more and better so in that way anarchism for me is a practice rather than a philosophy or a theory um i pull from like some people like david graber here too like graber um sort of he um distinguishes anarchism from Marxism in that way that it, it's like an ethical practice rather than a theory about revolution. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like anarchism actually for me is a practical um, attempt to think about how we live our life, right? And like putting putting value in the things that we want rather than the things we do. Uh, so I'm so glad that you mentioned uh, David Graeber when you were talking about like it's 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 a way of practice. It's a way of imagining a different thing. I was immediately reminded of the his his book, uh, The Dawn of Everything, that he wrote with uh, with David David Wengrow. Yeah, David Wengrow. Yeah, and there are a lot of great great examples there. Where but the problem is that as you mentioned that we we live in a system and it's so ubiquitous, it's so everywhere that we can't even imagine anything beyond that. Even even questioning that is unimaginable to people um and i guess that's what that's what you mean by by talking about anarchism as a mode of disidentification am i right yeah um that's one like that's sort of like the central um uh thread through the book about how to how to like practice anarchism is to and it, you know it has a negative connotation and that actually one of the sort of capsule definitions i used for anarchism and some of the work that i'm doing is like anarchism is a demand to end this world, right? To destroy the world. I, I embrace the destruction of it, not in the sort of glorification of violence, but that like what makes something anarchist to me is like that we see the world that we are living in, the structures of the world and say, well, I want to negate that and create new structures. Um, so disidentification is this um, negative 
you know, sense to it, but it's the, it's a way of kind of rooting out the state logics that are ingrained within our head, right? Like, you know, one of the examples I say is like, when you defer to an authority, when you have a problem, right? Um, and this could happen in lots of different ways. Like people use the example of like, Mark Neocleos um, in his work on policing talks about, um, uh, you know, like there's like uh, animals in the road or something and the roads um, goes down, you call the police to get them, to get them help get the animals out of the world. The police have like put themselves in the position to like answer these problems that don't need to be solved by police, for example, right? You defer to an authority or like you have a, a conflict with your neighbor and rather than talk to your neighbor, you call in the police or you call the landlord or whatever. Um, I see this even in anarchist spaces that like, you know, when I've organized book fairs and there's a conflict that goes on, the people come to the organizers and say, there was a conflict and we want you to to handle it. And I'm like, well, you'd hand, like, I got your back, but like, go and confront this con conflict rather than look to someone else to to make it, you know, safe for you. Um, because that, that's really like that kind of idea of safety, the security state is is a world where no one can really live. So um, this identification is to think about like the the ways that we um, impose authority in our relationships with people or defer to authority. I think this happens also in like romantic relationships and friendships, like you embody hierarchies, um, you demand things beyond people's boundaries. Um, you, uh, yeah, I mean, also like I, I make the kind of connection that like the model of relationships that we have mirrors the idea of the state that we need to like have eternal, you know, promises to to be together, um, just like the state is supposed to last forever. But that actually, one of the things that anarchism can teach us is how to practice ending things and breaking up and the dissolution of things. This is part of the kind of anarchist structure of organizing too. Uh, I, I talk about in the book about the affinity group um, and like consensus organizing that rather than you know, forming a party or forming a structure that's going to outlast a specific action, you can have an affinity group that comes together to be like, we're going to do this. We all want, we all share these same ideas or we share the same aims and, and the kind of methods. And we come together to like do this action and then we leave it. So like anarchism teaches us that we don't need to make like um, institutions that outlast their purpose. And in fact, you know, I take this lesson from Ursula Le Guin's novel, The Dispossessed is an anarchist utopia that if we create institutions without checking, like checking the ways that they're functioning, um, power will start to collect in, in spaces, right? So like the ending of things is a really important way to counteract power. Um, so I think about that in terms of relationships, right? Like breaking up, breaking up with your friends, breaking up with lovers, ending things that don't, that don't work. Or like, you know, like just the way that there's rhythms of relationship, right? Like that you can think about like things having different meanings at different times. So um, yeah, disidentification looks at the ways that we embody state logics, uh, capitalist logics, and each chapter I kind of uh, center around a specific like form of disidentification we can do to be like, this is the narrative we get about what we're supposed to be doing in this situation in our like love at work, um, you know, in the, in the market. Um, and, and maybe we could like do it differently. <laughs> uh, you also mentioned in the book that Occupy Wall Street, is, you talk about Occupy Wall Street and how it showed the shortcomings of anarchism. That was one of the moments that anarchism was sort of revived and David Graeber was there as well. So can you tell us what you mean by saying that Occupy Wall Street showed us shortcomings of anarchism? Yeah, I mean, I mean that very specifically because I'm, I'm not trying to say uh, Occupy Wall Street was like a worthless thing to happen because um, obviously it was, like you said, a, a, a kind of revitalization of the anarchist movement that had kind of languished for 10 years after the alter globalization movement 
um, during the kind of war on terror years. Um, and so that's great because a lot of people that I work with now were radicalized through Occupy, you know, and like, uh, and a lot of people then got firsthand experience of organizing along anarchist principles. And yeah, obviously Graeber was part of that. Um, the shortcomings, actually, I'm, I'm talking about something very specific, going back to consensus. So, um, you know, like the ways that um, Occupy Wall Street and the other Occupy um, groups often worked was through consensus organizing, which is a basic kind of way of, of uh, anarchist organizing, which means that it, rather than like having a majority vote on uh, what whatever you're deciding as a group, you have to have consensus, which means that everyone agrees, right? And so uh, that involves, <laughs> it's like, this is the joke about uh, anarchism, like the revolution's like endless meetings, right? Because like you propose something and then everyone has to talk it out. And if there's disagreements, you like have to keep talking through the conflict until people decide that they agree. Um, the, the way that this works is through something called a block. So if like someone proposes a measure, you got to second it, right? And like you go around and see like who wants it and then someone can block it. And if one block in a consensus organizing space means that you can't go ahead with it, right? You have to deal with that. And, and that can be um, abused, you know? Uh, and, and people, you know, in the open structure of Occupy could like walk into a space and just block something because it's open. It's not like we have membership here. Um, and people also can wield the blocking uh, mechanism as a form of power. I've seen this in, in other form, in other moments of organizing that there'll be people in a group that just block everything that they don't agree with. And then it becomes just a kind of tool of imposing their own will on, on the group. Um, and so uh, looking at that, I'm like thinking, I, I think consensus is good, but that there's other ways of that there's ways that we need to approach it and and specifically through this idea of like leaving or breaking up is how I'm, I'm getting at it right so like in the situation where if you're in a group and you're finding yourself blocking everything you're not in the right group go into a different group right this is another anarchist principles like diversity of tactics that you know like you don't critique the way that other people are doing things um if it's not what you want to do, go find the group that does it the way you want to do, right? But like, there's a, a bunch of different ways that we can work towards liberation um, that uh, you don't need to like make sure someone doesn't do it, right? Just do your own thing. So if you're if you find yourself blocking everything a group's doing, you're in the wrong group. Leave and form your own group, right? Um, and and that I think is really important. Um, I mean, maybe there's not always enough groups to do that, but uh, but. You know, because if you're like in some town, you're like, this is, these are the anarchists and they're doing this and I don't like what they're doing. I just think that like, rather than, um, you know, uh, you know, there's this like kind of feeling in, in like leftist circles that we need like a big tent leftism that brings everyone in together. Um, and that doesn't ever work, especially when you have the kind of conflict between authoritarian uh, leftists and anti-authoritarian leftists will always come down to a problem there. Usually the authoritarian leftists will will feed the anti-authoritarian leftists to the cops um, or the army or whatever, if you're talking about it historically. Um, and so, like, instead of, like, you know, feeling shame over the splintering of our leftist groups, we can think about that kind of that multiplicity of spaces that can be created through finding the limits of our working together um, as a place of possibility to do more things. And having more people do more things is good. So it's also kind of letting go of this idea of like a massive politics that the aim is to get everyone on board on something because that's just not possible, right? And like we end up, I think if we end up in um, sort of going towards the ideas of democracy that 
don't work, right? That 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 allows for um, you know states to function in the way they do. So so the critique there isn't. It's not really like. Again, I, I'm like I think that Occupy is important, and what I what I'm writing in the wake of is like something that Occupy and the and the movement of the squares and the Arab Spring um, were the kind of herald of, you know, all these things that we we've had, and and all the upri- the like the uprisings of Black Lives uh, for Black Lives in in the U.S. and globally, like we have we have things happening more and more and more, right, and closer together, and so there's something really important there. I'm not saying this isn't good. I'm just saying specifically around consensus that we should learn that like maybe our groups can be formed differently uh and and we have different kind of aims of how we do that and also the ability to to break them up uh yeah yeah you brought up important points you more recently like you said there have been a lot of uprisings clearly shows that people are not happy with the way with the status quo and the way system is working but I guess one of the main issues, as you also mentioned, is kind of organizing as well, how how these groups can come together. Uh, let's talk about, uh, you, you talk about the many different issues in the book, uh, educational institutions, familiar relationships, because uh, it's about a practical guide to everyday, anarchism in everyday life. Let's talk about personal relationships. Is you talk about polyamory? Is 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 that an anarchist act, or if you are monogamous, could it could it be an anarchist act in any way? Yeah, I mean, so I'm like I come in and say, you know, don't listen to the people who say that the only anarchist way of of having like romantic entanglements is through polyamory because uh, because we shouldn't listen to someone telling us what to do, right? But you know, there's anarchists who who claim that polyamory is a is a way to combat the um, or like polyamory non-monogamy, whatever you want to call it, uh, the way to combat the kind of property relations that often um, in like in here in a kind of you know like marriage life partner type of situation. The idea that I mean, marriage specifically is based on on the idea of property, right? On like securing property through um, heterosexual relations. Um, and like and and classically, the sort of wife was the property of the husband. Um, so there's this argument that's made that polyamory is a way to get outside of that. But most people are I don't know most people. There's no I don't have statistics on this. People don't always do polyamory well. People hurt each other through polyamory. It's not easy to do. It's not the only way to do things. People have all kinds of different wants and needs. And if you want to be in a couple, like anarchism shouldn't tell you you can't do that, right? Like. Um, but we can still think about what we do when we couple, right? And 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 if we have exclusive relationships, how we can still how we can avoid enacting the the sort of terror and violence that comes with a typical family structure, which I mean, a lot of people have firsthand knowledge of that, especially as a kid, right? That like I don't know, you grow up in a household and it's claustrophobic because there's no way out because it, everything's isolated into this one structure. So you can think about how you know there's ways to like that your romantic or intimate relationships aren't shouldn't be the only relationships you have right we're we're kind of taught that you find your person and then you kind of you can let everything else fall by the wayside right especially if you're like raising kids we're forced into isolation often with raising kids um parenting um so like we you know we give up our friendships we give up like the kind of uh differential kinds of relationships we have that aren't like you have different like close kinds of intimacy and closeness with different people, um, so you can act, enact that kind of like there's another term like relationship anarchy, um, 
while still being in a couple, just be like my my you know romantic partner isn't my be all end all, right? I'm not expecting them to fulfill all the needs for me. I get like I get my life through other connections too. Uh, one way I think about it is like if you wanted to be in a couple, you could like be like we go out and come back together. You know, we go out and live and we come back together and share stuff. Yeah, so it's not to say that that's bad. And I, I, I just like, I don't want to say that there's only one way to do things. Just anarchism does have a history of aligning with like free love. That was the way like kind of thinking about in the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, um, and, you know, there's there's a lot to learn from that too. Like actually enacting polyamory or non-monogamy teaches you stuff about the about jealousy, you know, the ways that we get jealous about other people's bodies. It makes you think about like the way that we invest sex with understandings of ownership and control um and uh yeah it faces you with discomfort from the ways that like the norms of of reality so it's something that you could try and 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 see if it's for you if you're into it um but but like it takes a lot of work to do that well which is like being open and honest and and having guidelines and being willing to like process and talk with people and 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 not just like it's not just a free-for-all right it's like a way of the the they talk about ethical ethical non-monogamy is like a way of of relating to people with a kind of openness that um allows for this kind of different way of relating um at you know multiple relationships at the same time does that answer your question yes yes it does but as you mentioned it's not an easy thing and a lot of people don't think back about the origins i i remember i read it somewhere that the whole idea of monogamy is more or less a recent thing and biologically speaking humans I'm not sure if it's right or wrong because I haven't really done a research. I just read an article that biologically humans are not really uh, monogamous. It's it's something that has been kind of imposed on us by those structures. And as you rightly mentioned, there is a property relation as well. You sign a contract, the, you make a commitment or, pro, uh, or, or promise, you know, to to be loyal, to go through, mm-hmm. you know, good and bad, whatever it's called. When when with that thing that they say when they get married. So I, I clearly do see this 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 uh real property relationship there and understand that how um being uh um how polyamory could could be a challenge to that kind of hierarchy or those property relationship but um well that that also just i want to say like the other thing that here we can parallel it with the with capitalism capitalism imposes a sense of scarcity or imposes scarcity on us right like there's enough for everyone to have what they want but capitalism um you know like uh sort of promises some of that to go to waste in order to create the need to work and and you know and then that and then that wealth and resources can be hoarded at the top and a lot of people are in need um and so um the sort of like normative way of relating and romance is also a forced scarcity uh, and it operates under the idea first of all the idea that there's not enough people for um you know like love and fall in love with right that you have to like find someone and like and like lock them down as they they say right like wife them um and also the, the under the idea that like love itself is a scarce resource and and i don't think that's true i think that like connections with people can um just strengthen your ability to love and 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 what you have to share and you can see that like with in your own life very clearly right like that you have you have plenty to go around um you know, given the right conditions, <laughs> mm. if you're in, in bad conditions, maybe that's not true, but like, yeah. So we don't have to think about love as a scarce resource. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Uh, let's talk about familiar relationship. You talk about uh, anarchism, you know, 
being put into practice even in the family. So how does this familiar relationship can help us better grasp the idea of community and resistance to power? For example, if I challenge uh, my, my dad or any request he might have of me is, how could it be uh, anarchist anarchism put into practice? Yeah, um, well, so like one way of thinking about the nuclear family, the heteronormative, cis-heteronormative nuclear family is that it's a kind of laboratory of learning hierarchies. That that's where you're trained to follow hierarchies. And, you know, you can make the parallel between the the dad and the boss, the dad at home, the boss at work, and then like, you know, the leader of the country or the state, right? Like these are all forms of hierarchy. And, and, and when you're a child, you're under, uh, in this typical kind of situation, you're under the rule of the the leader of the house it doesn't have to be an actual like cis father cis man father right it could be someone else because even within queer relationships people are enacting um you know what what is called adultism or or the kind of subject subjectification of children um so you know i mean to put it into kind of like slogany terms like i'm talking about family abolition and youth liberation right because the family is a place where youth where children are placed under the oppression of other people, right? They're minoritized. And so, yeah, I could see like your resistance to your power structure as, you know, if you're resisting your father, that's a practicing a resistance. And then there could be a way if you're a parent to think about that, right? Like that, but what do I want to instill in my kid? Isn't maybe isn't obedience, right? If I, and often the things that parents do um, in response to the the needs and wants that kids express to them is arbitrary, right? It's based on their comfort and based on what's what they're able to do. It's based on exhaustion a lot of the time, you know. Um, and so, if you really interrogate the, that and say, like, uh, this kid is this kid, my kid, whatever, the kid is asking me for something, and why am I trying to say no here? <laughs> why 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 is my no more important than this kid's uh, need? Um, and that that can make you really interrogate that relationship. And then and then so maybe you want to promote your kids questioning of, of your authority. Right. Uh, and maybe even enact that a little bit that you can. I, I think it's important to practice with children, um, you know, like the acknowledgement of of shortcomings, acknowledgement of failures, acknowledgement of messing up, because rather than think that, like, you have to double down on anything that you say, right? Just say to, to show, to represent to, to kids. And this is, you know, part of like creating a kind of world of transformative justice that like we mess up and we can do better. And, and that shows children also that you're willing to work with them, that you're there, you're showing up um, and that you see their experience because um, often kids aren't listened to um, or heard or seen what they need. Um, I'm not saying all this is easy, especially in the way that our world is organized. Often parenting is so secluded and isolated, especially during COVID. It, was, uh, it, it got even worse. And that, that's still you know, lingering. Um, so like and, and people have to work. We don't have the optimal conditions to do this, but it's something to think about that how we like rather than form a family structure, whether it's like normative, normative or not, as the laboratory for you know, obedience and hierarchy and oppression. And, and try to shift that relationship, you know, with the kids um, to something that empowers them and, and creates the conditions for them to to direct their own life in some way. And I, this is, you know, I could talk more about this if you wanted, but like this is really coming to the fore with um, with trans trans youth. Yeah, it would be great if we could, yeah, talk more. Well, how 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 is that? Yeah, I mean, specifically in the United States, the there's a kind of um, 
a panic around the possibility of children transitioning. And, and this is not simply relegated to the Christo fascists who are trying to impose, you know, white cisgender norms, but it's also in the New York Times that completely mm -hmm. launders those fascist ideas through just asking questions about what is, um, you know, okay for children and, and how it relates to parents' authority. Um, also, this is the kind of overblown thing in a way because like the kids who are trying to transition aren't like a huge number. But but I do think I, I as an anarchist, um, am saying that the the fact of children transitioning is a threat to this society. Like they're they are trying to change things. Um, so this shows you like that that kids, you know, one way you can say it, and I've heard other people say this, is that kids are sort of like like before they are formed into the norms of our cultures, uh our state and market-based cultures, they are anarchists, right? Um, they see the possibilities of transformation, like a kid wanting to transition, whether or not they stay wherever they start out. Like, you know, transition isn't is an A to B um, pathway. It's, it's an open-ended process. Like the kids see the possibility of being differently, right? And doing different things and changing the world. And um, so, you know, it's important, I think, to, um, to listen to kids, to trust their opinions, um, and to uh, enable them and support them to do what they want, because they also, in these structures, rely on adults to um, mm. to help them, right? Because <laughs> they mm. don't have all the resources. Um, and so, yeah. So I see this like the struggle around trans kids as as a kind of hyper intensified version of like controlling children. Also, in in the states, they've articulated the the kind of attack at schools around learning about. Um, like you know, queerness and also learning about racism as a an issue of parental rights, which is just like very clearly saying that we own children as property and like we decide what they get to know and not know um, and what they're exposed to and not exposed to. It's like this idea of complete control. Um, so that that just kind of might, makes it clearer. And another thing that I like to put out there when I'm talking to people is like I'm at, uh, trying to create spaces that are inclusive inclusive of children because a lot of our spaces are not welcoming to children. Um, and that is a further isolation. So if we're trying to create liberated spaces, we should have intergenerational like um, connections in there, you know, and, and kids should be uh, welcomed in and listened to or, or just like making a space where you can have intellectual conversations and play and noise and, and concentration at the same time, rather than be like, kids have to be out of here and segregated because what they do doesn't conform to the things that I think I need to do. Uh, when, when you were speaking, I was reminded, I guess it was a video I saw Few months ago that some parents you know storming into a school board meeting because they wanted they didn't want their children to learn about critical race theory and even none of them had any idea what that meant they just knew right. critical race theory <laughs> that's bad for our kids uh let's talk about uh, anarchism at work uh okay. so work it's obviously uh, i was talking to simon carucci like a year ago and he said work is a curse we're yeah i mean biblically speaking it's a curse we've been <laughs> Abandoned, we have been yeah. banned from from paradise and been condemned to work uh we we work obviously there is this work relationship there are a lot of hierarchies if you if there's an issue and want to raise the issue you have to go through the hierarchies and many people uh, owe a lot of money to the banks not necessarily for luxuries but even for basic needs car yeah. and home whatever uh how can we be anarchists how can we change the structures because the people the thing is that there is this element of fear they don't want to risk losing their job because of the consequences it might have. But I guess uh, 
and obviously a lot of them aren't happy with the way things are working, but out of fear, they're just quiet. So uh, just follow the structures. So how can we be anarchists at, at, at work? How can we challenge those yeah. hierarchies at work? Right. So one of the, the way that I kind of bring in this idea of like dissent disidentification is to, first of all, disidentify with the idea that work itself has any kind of ethical um, like quality, because that we're sort of taught that like we are, we make ourselves in, in, into like kind of morally responsible beings through the work we do. So that a lot of values based on work. And I think this is true even within like sort of Marxist ways of thinking about work um, because because like classical Marxist um, theory sort of located the worker as the revolutionary subject. So there's a lot of like within the history of different forms of Marxist thinking um, kind of worship of the worker. And from the anarchist perspective, we want to say we want to abolish work, right? The work relationship that we live under is a relationship of capitalism. It's a relationship of force, right? The history of the imposition of capitalism on people is to to disconnect people from subsistence, from their ability to make their lives um, themselves and force them in, in, into needing to search for waged labor to survive, right? To buy food and have shelter. And so there's no way, work in itself isn't gonna be freedom, right? Like even union unionizing in, in, in the workplace, it, it can get you stuff. I'm not saying don't do not do it. I don't think we're in the time where unions are, are gonna be making the biggest headway, although there is a lot of work workplace organizing now that's very exciting and doing good things and i think it, a lot of it's indifferent it's outside the kind of un, like the union structure a lot of the time but like for me i personally don't think work is the point of revolution like we 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 can say that we know how to do the things right like we are all workers and we have skills that we can learn to use and, and to, to make the world that we want um, and, you know, there's definitely anarchist ideas, too, of like workers taking over the means of production and pr producing the world. But I'm trying to think about it also on this day to day level. Like you say, not all of us are in a position where we can collectivize our workplace. Um, a lot of us are in the position, like you said, of relying on, um, you know, not just our salary, but even debt to survive. And um, and, you know, that we don't know that we could have another job. And so we 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 want to, like, you know it's hard for us to imagine messing up and getting and losing it. So what can we do in that situation? Um, I think of work then as a place to steal from, right? Uh, in a way I get this from Fred Moten, Stefano Harney and, and the undercommons where they talk about the university, like the relationship, the only, I think they say like the only ethical relationship the university is one of theft. We can generalize that to work, right? Like work is a place where you have access to certain kinds of resources. How can you take your access to those resources and make them available to other people? Um, another way of thinking about this too is like, what is your relationship to your coworkers? Maybe you're not at the point of unionizing or like collectivizing, but we are forced in the position of work to compete with people, right? To enact competition amongst ourselves, to police each other. Like Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about the policing function or that we're on guard duty all the time, right? And one of the examples she has is like, if you're at a workplace and you like see someone taking money out of the till and you turn them in, right? Like we police each other and we could just not be doing that. Like what, what does it matter? Um, so rather than compete, you can find ways to like collaborate, to get what you need together, to like think about the workplace as one of exploitation, not fulfillment, right? That's another disidentification that, that your life is fulfilled through the job you have. Most of us don't have a job that's even close to what we would think that it would be, but there are still those like vocations and professions that are are sort of like 
represented in the world as like as as morally good right whether it's uh, you know the teacher even though the te teachers are, are never actually like lauded but we we sort of think of it as something good but like other kinds of care work like nursing and, and medicine um rather than identify with your job as the like the meaning of yourself like think about how you can use your access there to 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 do other things this is important where you know abortion um is imperiled in the united states so like how can doctors and nurses rather than serve the function of the state of turning people in find ways to make the resources that they have access to available in other ways you know maybe even outside the institution and healthcare is like a really important place to think about this because the healthcare in for-profit spaces um really makes it impossible for us to to get the care we need but like we need doctors and nurses thinking about how to how to help us get access to that so yeah so thinking about the workplace as a place of theft that you take you, even i say steal your time from right that like when you're there and most people working nine to five jobs uh in the kind of bullshit job that uh the sense of david graber right aren't actually using that time productively as the the um the boss would see it so you can steal your time there to like dream up you know <laughs> ways of uh of diverting resources towards other places or or thinking about other things you know um the zine culture like use this photocopier to to make pamphlets and and flyers i don't know there's all different kinds of ways you can do it um it's not in itself liberation but it's a way of practicing our um disident identification mm -hmm. uh, i just joking, whenever I go to some of my colleagues, we're good friends, I've been in that workplace for about five years. So whenever I just go to talk to them, they just turn to me, say, hi, Maury, what can I do for you? I said, no, 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 that's not the right, I'm not your customer, I'm not your client. So just say, how are you doing today, right? I'm not here to ask you for something to do, I'm just here to talk. And I'd say it all in a joking way and they kind of get my sense of humor. But you're absolutely right, because it has been ingrained in our brain that if I call a colleague, it's just that I have a request work request it's a task that i'm assigning or it's a task that i've been assigned that i need to do and uh, we just need to kind of dis uh, disidentify with these structures and uh, educational institutions also are an important part of the problem but at the same time they're also an important part of our society and upbringing in early ages we go into an institutional um in educational institution uh we learn a lot of new things at the same time, a lot of these structures are reinforced and uh, our brain would wire to just take them for granted. I can talk about myself personally. I wasn't really questioning things until I started doing a PhD. And it wasn't because of my PhD. It was because I could see how I was being exploited. I was really working hard. I was doing something that a full staff, I mean, a full-time, uh, 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 I don't remember the terminology you know with professors who are just hired they're on tenure yeah uh tenure yeah. track professors were doing but it was paying very very minimal uh for what i was doing and i and i could see how money was being wasted in university in different areas but when it came to wages they were always talking about efficiency productivity and i could say it's just bullshit it's absolutely bullshit how much money for example the executive team university of boards are wasting on a two or three day meeting in my university in Auckland, I guess there was a three-day meeting about restructuring with the vice chancellor and the board members. And I think the costs were around 800000 for a three-day meeting. Uh, it was it was just insane. And basically, they decided, yeah, to make a lot of people redundant. Even professors who had been there for like 10 or 15 years, 
because nobody was, for example, was studying classical music theory anymore. Let's just teach them how to produce a shitty music that, you know, you can produce on a on a software and sell it somewhere else. Anyway, anyhow, so can we completely dismantle these educational institutions or how can this act of learning or studying the world be detached from these institutions? Because we do learn a lot of things from these institutions, but how can we start questioning them? Yeah, um, right. So there's like, uh, there's sort of the idea of what education does, which in a lot of ways that we talk about is, is the idea that education brings you freedom or at least upward mobility, right? That you need education to get make it, make it in this world and in this kind of class-based society, the idea is that you would like do better than your parents or something. But also it's clear that the the schools are a space of indoctrination, right? Um, and also like sometimes I just think about them simply as a place to hold kids, right? Um, the only kind of childcare you can rely on is that your kid has to go to school, is forced to go to school and they keep them in a place where they're not gonna be unruly or ungovernable. Um, and in that process, there are also these is where all that kind of stuff that we need to end up dis- disidentifying from is, is instilled within us. So it's um, so there's yeah there's these two sides to it that school can be a place where you can learn things that are really important that allow you to question the world, but it's also a place where you're indoctrinated. And then when you're working in these places too, you see the the role that you're playing. Also, you see how you're exploited, like you said. Um, and and I think in a lot of ways, like well, in the, yeah, it's different in the university systems. Like faculty have have given up um, seated control to focus on their like individualized tasks. So it's another place where we can think about how we don't compete with each other, but work together. Um, but if school, so yeah, we can't completely discard the idea of like education or school, but we can think about schooling as not being limited specifically to the place that is called school. Um, if you, you know, are a parent and you rely on school and are forced to send your kid to school and you don't, you can't like homeschool or whatever, like you, you can um, try to find a way to um, kind of help your, your child sort of like, I don't know, just like to, to kind of promote and support your child's own like ideas of what they're thinking and their ways of questioning the world that's put in them or like kind of give them other ways of, of, of thinking about the world. Cause you know, the reason that there's this attack against critical race theory and, and queerness is because it's questioning the norms, right? They're, they don't want white people learning in the United States about the history of slavery. They say it's because they're worried that they're going to be ashamed of themselves. But really, it's because they don't want them to be race traitors, to betray whiteness, right? To, to work together with black people. Because you learn the actual history of the world. It's very hard for you not to say this is messed up and I want to do something about it <laughs> to, to kind of school people into not caring or to thinking that it doesn't matter that these things are over is this long, lifelong process of, of erasing actual history. So there's ways that you have to supplement what you're taught in school because a, a lot of it's censored. Right. And this is this is actually being acted now because we're like getting more and more explicitly fascist in the state formations around the globe. Um, so. So yes, supplemental education to think about like what things are left out, but also to 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 kind of undo the divide between the school as a place of learning and the world as a place of of studying, right? That like you know um, the sort of pathway of professionalization is is really like this narrow pathway, and and there's like all these steps, and a lot of it is like determined by authority structures in the state and and it gives up the ideas of like learning by doing right by like apprenticing or something like that like learning how you how you do something by just doing it rather than like reading about it and thinking about it and then like eventually maybe you, you do it like i didn't uh 
I didn't get trained to, to be a teacher. I had one class on pedagogy and, and I was thrown in the classroom. I, I learned it myself and, and through trial and error a lot of the ways because like my one pedagogy class was, a, was a super theoretical and nothing to do with actual practical experience of like and even then the students the teachers all acted like they hated the students right that they would have this adversarial relationship between the the teacher and the student which is such a messed up way to relate to the people that you're supposed to be teaching um so like you know as a teacher one way that i think about it is that i'm given a position of authority that i can't completely evacuate right i can't go into the school that gives me the power of grading over my uh students and the position of authority that's afforded me by like a phd and the knowledge that i, I um you know have like built up over time and through work um but i can do things to counteract it and so i try to empower students to have them work with me to create the class i have them uh, make up the assignments they want to do. We like come up with community guidelines. Um, you know, and and also I just you know I I give everyone A's because I'm, <laughs> I'm always hiring you that way. Um, like I I value their their engagement and participation rather than trying to force them into into feign interest for the the grade. Um, you know I'm not I'm not heroic and I don't think I, again I don't think teaching in an institution is liberation itself. It's just a way to like plant some seeds and, and find and help help students also find that they have access to resources through their school that they can divert to other things. Cause I've had students, you know, use the the resources that they have to, to do mutual aid outside of the community. So it's like built, breaking down these divides is like a way of places to learn, bringing people from outside schools to learn inside the school and then taking your, your study outside the school um, and, and, and thinking about the world. It, it, it's a, another way of like, doing all this kind of division that we are like are human and the more than human world is not um, for us to like know about or be part of, right? We like study it as an object so we can think about it rather like as a way to integrate. Cause like, you know, in like indigenous sciences and ways of knowing doesn't look the same as, as Western knowledge production. It's much more um, connected to like living amongst other kinds of beings and creatures. And it's still like, it's it's like critically scientific, and a lot of and a lot of that's stolen and, and thieved by Western knowledge, right? To make you know, medicines and and whatever. So um so yeah, like we have to see that like that there's other ways of studying the world than this kind of narrowly focused one. Um, and that also I think just one more thing like applies to you know students who don't meet the academic standards that we that we think are important like that we put so much value in, in getting good grades and, and success, but like not everyone has different things that they want to do and they, that are good at. So like finding ways to support people to chase the things that, that bring them pleasure and that they like doing and feel good at rather than say that there's only one way to do it. Right. Not everyone's going to sit down and read books all day long. Um, uh, other people do other things. I, I, I always thought at one school I taught at, there was a, a the first I would teach these first years and, and the school for the way that it was run because it was an alternative kind of school people would always drop out and I was like really my job is like helping them drop out because they don't want to be in school they want to be doing other things I had a student who's like I want to make I want to like make boats but my parents want me to like be in college to do this I'm like you if you want to make boats and, and she was like I have a job that I could do that but I'm here and like, you're spending whatever, 40 grand a year, whatever it was back then is even more now to like, to, to please your parents when you have your thing all set up, like you should do that. Don't like, I don't know. You can always come back to school later if that's something you want. My parents also wanted me to be a medical doctor. I became a doctor, but not a medical one. <laughs> but, yeah. So I kind of half disappointed them, I guess. 
Right, uh, I did this. I mean, I, I have a Jewish background, and there's that like Jewish doctor thing. I, I, I that was planted in me as a child, but I, I became mm, the wrong kind. Mm, mm. I'm, I'm the kind that can't make money or, <laughs> or help anyone <laughs> in, uh, in need in in a crisis, uh, a health crisis. Mm-hmm. I, and uh, you also talk about economics a little bit, <clears throat> the idea that people are just forced into this idea of working, saving for for rainy days. But you also talk about spending money. That that I found interesting. Spending money uh, as an act of anarchy. How is how is that an act of anarchism? Um. So this is. I, I mean, I get to this through an, another form of a disidentification. That like, there's a lot of moralism placed on money, right? That like, poor people are blamed for being poor because they haven't saved or worked hard enough. Um. But the fact is that like the people who are who are saving and not spending is are the the rich people and the, and they're given things for free and poor people are are like struggling to make ends meet and and then take like kind of what's stolen from from us the workers is the idea that we have access to luxury right like you know in the looting situation is is always really um visible right that like the media will critique the people looting for if they're not looting just the basic needs, but looting like fancy shoes and TVs, right? Like that's not something you need, um, which is like ridiculous because we live in this world where all, of all this abundant luxury that is only accessible to some people. So I try to think of like an anarchist form of luxury, um, which, you know, in this current situation might be modes of luxury that we wouldn't want to persist outside of capitalism, right? Like maybe we don't have a world with like just horrible TV, but, um, but that like, that we should have a relationship to the things we want and need um, outside the idea of capitalism, which makes us think that there's something we could buy that would fulfill us. Um, but like through this kind of non-moralistic sense of like, like kind of following your pleasure, this is my like kind of queer anarchism too. Um, so, okay. So also thinking about like our participation in the marketplace, you know, we can't, most of us are forced to do that through work and having to buy things to survive. Some people, you know, maybe go off the grid. Usually they have some some relationship to it, but most of us are forced to relate to this. Um, and and we can really like harm ourselves thinking that there was some ethical way, a pure, pure way of like living in this world. There isn't, right? Like you you can't buy all the the like ethically produced things because they're more expensive right? and you don't make the, uh, that much money. Um, so you have to think about ways that you can like get what you need um, and uh, um, I don't know. It's yeah. It's really just like not placing the kind of moral emphasis and either like the buying or the having of money. Um, and uh, you know, I think about this also when you said in terms of like spending versus saving. Like we could save all this money, but the world is is in crisis, and we have no idea that it's going to be there in ten years the way it wants. So what are we saving for anyway? I mean, obviously, if crisis happens, maybe having money would be helpful to you. But like, but like putting it off for another day. Um, is capitalist thinking, right? This idea that like you take your profit and invest it in something else rather than use it right now, right? That, like that we, that what the exchange value is more important than the use value. I mean, to kind of take it off the kind of thinking about commodities. The other thing I think there is like, um, it, it, it isolates us. So um, if I have money now and I'm like, and I have what I need and I have extra, I put it in my bank but there's people around me who need money and I have some capitalism is what tells me that I shouldn't share it. Right. That I shouldn't spread those resources. Um, so you can think about it as like a way of like sharing and giving, like when you have money, you know, 
Um, we see this a lot in in this current world that like what gets called mutual aid is often like people, you know, helping other people pay their rent or um, a lot of it's done through money transactions because people don't have access to that. Right. So like paying rent, um, buying groceries or whatever for some someone else. But it could also be with spoiling them, you know, take them out to dinner, buy them gifts, whatever. <laughs> um, so there's like maybe there's ways of thinking kind of infusing the sort of what often gets called an anarchist understanding of economy, like the gift economy. Graeber talks about this going back to Marcel Mose, that um, that there's like rather than an economy of exchange and um, that your relationship is formed through reciprocity, that gift. Uh, well, there's there is reciprocity and gift, but like you form the social relations by like giving something to someone else um, rather than, you know, transactional buying um, of something. And so is there a way that we can use our access to whatever resources we have, including money as a way to kind of form relationships through gift giving, whether it's even to yourself, you know, um, again, this isn't the place where revolution is going to happen or our liberation is going to happen, but um I want to go away from ideas of purity because I don't think those exist. And I think they limit us in horizons and often enshrine norms that we want to overturn, um, you know, often like masculinist sort of religious, even norms. Um, and um, I lost, I was going to say another thing, but yeah, just like, we, yeah, we can't have purity. There isn't moral value in it. Um, and so how do we get what we want and we need, whether through theft or sharing, <laughs> um, and uh, and and not kind of beat ourselves up over over um, you know just not in, not integrate that kind of moralistic thinking that I shouldn't have more. We all want we want it all. Hmm. Uh, another you know, fascinating part of the book was that was, we talked about it earlier in the beginning that anarchism is generally associated with destruction, but this anarchism could also be a creative project. And um, it reminded me I was reading a story some time ago. Destructors, I think it was called Graham Greene, was this beautiful sentence that destruction is a kind of a construction as well, or it's a kind of a creative project. But can you talk about anarchism as a creative project? What do you mean by anarchism as a creative project? Yeah, um, I don't shy away again from calling anarchism destructive um, because I think like there part of anarchism's work is to to um to tear down the structures that make us blind to things that we're doing so it's not like i'm not thinking like destroy everything um and which often causes harm right <laughs> um but like that that there's something that we need to kind of negate in order to see the possibilities but that second part is really important so one of the ways you think about this goes back to work is like refusal it's another power you have at the workplace is to not do something, right? Refusal sounds negative, but the refusal opens up a space for something else to happen. Um, abolitionists also talk about abolition not as a destructive process, but a creative one that we're like, we're not talking merely about ending prisons and policing, but also like building the world that doesn't need police and prisons to function. Um, and I think anarchism is also doing that. It, it, we And that's why I, I look at it not simply like what we get in the media is the breaking the windows, the black block, the, um, I mean, usually it's police being violent towards people. Um, but, uh, that in, in all these little daily moments, we're creating something, we're creating connections and the connections that we create are the possibilities of, um, of mutuality, right. And, and liberation because we, our liberation is dependent on each other. Um, so another thing I, I often think about is like, if you are in a street action, what happens, even if you don't, even if whatever like the thing is about, 
the protest or whatever doesn't win, what you do get out of that often is this really intensified sense of connection with the people on the street with you, right? You get each other's back. You might not know them, most of them, but you have this like really intense sense of connection. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of that's put into place by the kind of anarchist organizing that makes um, direct confrontation possible. So how do we think about that outside of the kind of intensity of confrontation, forming those kinds of bonds and relationships with each other in the off times and the off moments? Um, to me, that is really like laying the framework for the possibility of living a different life. So, um, you know, like the most important thing maybe is like making a meal, right? And sharing it with people. Um, this is why mm -hmm. the Black Panther breakfast program was seen as the most dangerous aspect of the Black Panther Party, right? Because like, like feeding people outside the structures of the state and capitalism um, and like, you know, service industry is a... Uh, is dangerous. Um, and, you know, caring for someone like I, I think about um, how I'm, I'm a chronically ill person and, you know, there's disabled networks of care that people um, rely on each other to make their lives possible. Like that's a form of anarchism too, that like we, we acknowledge that we are interdependent and that we can ask for each other, each other to help us. Mm -hmm. And that's, and there's a lot of shame that's put into asking for help, but people tend to like to give to help each other. Right. Um, and if we, if we, like promote that possibility amongst ourselves, like we'll create a different kind of relationship because it, it's a different kind of joy to help someone, right? Than to like win at something. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and does anarchism strive towards a final moment of victory or triumph? Or do you see it as an ongoing project of struggle and resistance against hierarchy? Um, I'm personally like think that like, it's not going to be a punctual revolution that we like overturn, you know, the state and then we have anarchism. Um, personally, I think that if we, if, if like the state was overthrown, we wouldn't be ready to, to like enact an anarchist world, right? It would just open it up to some form of totalitarianism, potentially or fascism. Like we saw with, with the left revolutions that happened, right? Um, there could be other visions of this too, like a more decentralized thing. And, and that could be interesting and also dangerous. Um, so like, I'm not interested in, in sort of, I don't, I think there's a lot of genocidal <laughs> desire that gets, uh, uh, articulated through even leftist revolutionary fantasies. And so, um, I also bring anarchism to a sense of time and history that like, like, you know, like I said, on the moment on the streets, when you connect with people in a protest or a, a confrontation with the police, um, you can't sustain that moment forever right there's that's not life life isn't confrontation with the police right life is is a bunch of other things too and so um if we only think about anarchism and revolution through this kind of punctual thing we're leaving out all the other stuff that's important for our lives and so um yeah like we can relate to revolution on a different kind of time uh scale so as i said there's all these moments in the last decade and we could trace that back, you know, going back to like the commune or whatever in Paris um, in 1873, like there's, there's these repetitions of like revolutionary outbreaks that didn't force themselves into like replacing the state with another form of state. Um, and that like these have maybe been accelerating, right? Like the commune to May 68, right? To, um, you know, going up to like Occupy. And now it's like more and more, it's accelerating. And these are kind of like untimely moments of like of um 
interruption or eruption into this world of anarchist possibilities that can think of, make us think about how how we can create more um, perpetual relationships of love and care and freedom and mutual responsibility now. So there's like there's like two there's like multiple different things going on at once, and we don't want to put all our effort into one thing. If that makes sense. Uh, Scott Brunson, thank you very, very much for uh, talking to us about your book and sharing your thoughts on your book's network. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, these are great questions. and I love talking with you. And yeah, if anyone wants to reach out to me, my website's sjbranson.com and you can uh, contact me through that. But you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram. I like hearing from people. Um, so yeah, reach out to me. Tell me what you think.